are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone up at the mills. It is uh, good to be with you again this morning in this sermon series that we have called Reverberations. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the news this week, off the coast of Chile, there was a massive earthquake the tremors of which could be felt, they said, 300 miles away. Huge. Fortunately, there wasn't uh, a lot of damage or loss of life because of the remote region, although any loss of life is tragic. But here we are, about 6,000 miles away and 2,000 years apart, from a moment in which Matthew's gospel says, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake. And we still today are feeling the tremors of that event. And that's what this sermon series is about. It's about how we are still feeling the reverberations in our culture in ways that you may not even realize it, that that Christ has made a difference in our world. So gleaning, excuse me, from the thoughts of a book that John Ortberg has written and we've been recommending. It's called, Who Is This Man? I want to talk to you today about the impact that Jesus has made in our culture, specifically in regards to the view that we have of the value of human life, of human dignity. I want to talk about how Jesus changed the world's view of the dignity of every human being. We, in our founding documents the United States, have the words of Thomas Jefferson that, says th- that say this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and I believe he meant women there also, that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now let's just take a note of what that, those words mean, because what it's saying is that human beings are not accidents. You're not an accident. We believe in the foundation of our country that every human being was created and that our creator has endowed all human beings with certain rights that God has conferred upon every individual. The worth of every one of us has been given to us by our creator. And in order for any society or any nation or culture to be truly excellent, excellent, it has to recognize and honor the rights of all. And it's true for all people, not just the elite, but for everyone. And it says that this is self-evident. But I want to ask the question, is it really self-evident? Is it true that all people come into the world equally? That they are all equal? Now, I think we can say, how many of you would agree with me that everybody that's born in the world isn't given an equal chance? So in that regard, life isn't equal for all people. But what, what this statement says, what, what our Constitution says, is that, that in terms of the rights of humanity, the worth and the dignity of a human being, we are equal. We are equal. Now, the ancients didn't necessarily believe that. Aristotle wrote years ago, he said that all men are created equal. He contended that the natural order of things says that men, some men were created to be masters and some were born to be slaves. He wrote 
in politics. He says, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. In fact, there are parts of the world today, too, that would still see that whatever caste you're born into, that's the will of the gods. That's the will of fate. And that's how it's supposed to be, that we are not equal. But between Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson, somebody came. Who was that that changed the feeling of, 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 of mankind, or at least in our culture today? John Ortberg quotes Nicholas Wolderstorff, who's a Yale philosopher who wrote a book called Justice. And he wrote, we all now take for granted our moral subculture of rights. We are oblivious to how extraordinary it is that we should recognize human rights and personal rights. He says that throughout human history, human beings by nature tend to be tribal. He says, we don't think of outsiders as having the same worth or rights as we do. That's how it's been throughout history. And so he asked, what accounts for the emergence of this moral subculture that says that every human being has rights? And what, what this Yale philosopher contends is, he says that it's the teaching, beginning with the Hebrew scriptures, and it's clarified and made available through a broader, a broader world by Jesus, that every human being has actually been made by God by the God, in the image of God, and that every human being is loved by God. It is that thought that this philosopher contends is had made the difference in culture so that we today believe that every human being has been endowed with certain rights and, and been created equal by God. This changed the way the world thought about God. And so Jesus brought dignity to, to the individual person. So today, what I want us to do is take a look at an example of one of the times, and there's many examples in the Gospels like this, but I want to take a look at one of the times where we see Jesus conveying dignity to a certain person that was sending a message to all people that we must see each other differently. So if you have your scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 14. And I want to take a look at the story of a time that Jesus touched and healed a person. But as we look at this story, at the end of which, I'm going to ask you the question, where do you see yourself in this story? So I want you to take note as you look at the individuals here, and I'm going to ask you at the end, where do you see yourself in this story? And then I'll ask you to respond accordingly. So Luke chapter 14, if you have your scriptures, please turn there, or you can turn to it in your, uh, uh, your, your, your digital device or... If you need a Bible, there's one available probably in the seat in front of you or near you there. But let's take a look. Here's a story. It says, it begins with this sentence. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now, just that sentence is an introduction to, oh my, what's going to happen here? You can see, some happened on a certain Sunday. Jesus comes. He's being watched. So it sets up what follows. But I want you to notice the context here. It's the house of a prominent Pharisee. Why does he use that word prominent Pharisee? Because status was important in those days. Whatever status you had, you were more regarded, more respected. Your word had greater validity and truth to it. And, and uh, so this wasn't just an ordinary Pharisee. This was a prominent Pharisee. And Pharisees were 
They, I mean, they were pious people. They were serious people. They were very concerned about making the nation of Israel spiritual again. As we pray for revival, as we hope for revival in our nation, the Pharisees wanted that for their nation. They wanted the people to return to God, to live moral lives, to follow the covenant that that God had laid down in the Torah, in their Hebrew scriptures. They were very pious people. They believed that if if they could restore true spirituality to the culture, to the people of Israel, that the Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, he would restore their independence. He would give them freedom from their foreign domination. And they would be, they would be free to be all that God wanted them to be once again. And the Messiah would come only when they became spiritual enough. And so for them, helping people to become spiritual enough was their number one task. And so what they did is they defined very clearly what spiritual behavior was. And this happened on a Sabbath. So for the Pharisees, I want you to understand that one's observance of their Sabbath laws was, was one of the litmus tests of your spirituality. Right? So... We understand the the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. goes on to say, Neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, your male or female servant, nor your animals, or any foreigner shall do any work on that day. And the purpose of that was to remember the creation when God rested on the seventh day, and that you are created by God. But it was also given so that they would remember their deliverance from Egypt, so they would understand that they are no longer slaves, and they're free. Because when you were slaves, you had to work seven days a week, all, all day long. There was no freedom from the task. And so God's saying, I want you to take a day and remember, you're no longer slaves. You're free. But ironically, what happened was that this day that was originally a day of freedom from work and freedom from bondage, it became, in the time of Jesus, because of their obsession with obeying the rules and keeping the Sabbath, it became another day of slavery. They became a slave to so many little rules that were set up by these pharisaical leaders and, and the rabbinical teachers of their day that, that the Sabbath was a day where you were almost in bondage to do anything. You were a slave to your own home. But, but notice also it says he was being carefully watched. Why? Because Jesus had a reputation. And by this time, his reputation was he does things on the Sabbath that people aren't supposed to do. So they're keeping an eye on him. Namely, the work that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath was he would heal people. And, and in each of the instances, there were seven times in the scriptures it says that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, five of which are recorded in Luke's gospel. And so when Jesus comes, he's invited to the Pharisee's house. It's a, it's, it's, it's a prestigious, it's a predominant Pharisee. It's somebody that's high up. Along, among the social caste of those days, the Pharisees saw themselves as higher as the ordinary Jewish people that didn't have uh, the education or the prestige. So, but among the Pharisees, there was even statuses, status, um, levels of status. And so here's a predominant one. And he's being carefully watched. And so he's supposed to be intimidated. Now, when you get invited to dinner, usually it's a friendly invitation. You want to, you know, meet people, get to know people. You're invited. It's a courteous thing for somebody to do. But, but this isn't necessarily one of those instances. I would say that his invitation to come to this 
this, uh, this Pharisee's house was more like your invitation when you were in school to go to the principal's office. You know, you're to be intimidated. You're, you're to be on your best behavior. They're, they're looking at you. They're looking for a mistake. They're, here's the litmus test. Are you going to pass the test or are you not going to pass the test? And so, so Jesus is coming into this situation and you got to ask the question, what's he going to do? What happens, you know, at the end of this first sentence, you got to ask, what happens to make this story worth telling? What's Jesus going to do now? And then it goes on, verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees and the legal experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But notice, they remained silent. They didn't answer him. So taking hold of the man, he healed him, and then he sent him on the way. This man, who was this man? Why did he show up at this dinner? You gotta, you gotta ask that question. Did he just invite himself? Was he a setup? Did the Pharisees invite him just to test Jesus, to see what Jesus would do? He was suffering from some sort of condition. Uh, uh, edema, I think, is uh, uh, dropsy is another more old-fashioned word for it, where body fluids have caused a part of his body to swell and to look deformed. And it is the Sabbath. So here is a man that shows up. Obviously, he's sick. He needs help. And he's coming to, these, to this party on the Sabbath. I don't think the Pharisee invited him because he didn't keep him there after Jesus healed him. He went away after that. Jesus let him go. But it's the Sabbath and Jesus knows the rules. And according to their rules about the Sabbath, not necessarily the Old Testament rules about the Sabbath, but their rules about the Old Testament rules about the Sabbath because they would add rules on top of rules. And... Uh, there was this thing called the mortal danger rule, which provided an exception to the normal Sabbath restrictions if it was a life or death situation. You could use extreme measures to save somebody whose life was in danger. But in the case of somebody who was just chronically ill, it didn't apply. If you had a chronic condition, you can come the next day to get healed. You don't need to do it on the Sabbath. It wasn't an emergency. So they had an exception for somebody whose life was in danger. But this guy didn't meet the mortal danger rule. And in fact, of the seven cases that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, not one of them met the mortal danger rule. Every one of them could have waited for another day, but Jesus didn't want to wait for another day. He still healed them on the Sabbath. And so, and so Jesus says, what's the right thing to do here? You know, the, the polite thing to do would be just to sort of ignore the man because he's invited. It's not his home. He's there as a guest. It's not his problem. It's the man's problem. Jesus could have just kind of ignored it and, you know, maybe said, hey, come and see me tomorrow and I'll do something about that. You know, my office hours are from 8 to 5. Contact my assistant and... Uh, you know, if you have insurance, we'll take care of you. If not, you'll need to wait, whatever, you know. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. And he just, so he asks the question to them. So is it lawful 
He says, should we do something about this man on the Sabbath? Is it okay with you if I heal this guy? Jesus is saying, and nobody says a peep. Talk about awkward, awkward moment. It's one thing to have theoretical discussions about Sabbath rules, but it's a whole other thing when somebody is standing right in front of you and they need help. But in spite of the silence, Jesus wasn't intimidated. He knows he's being carefully watched. He, he knows. And so inside of him, I think, as none of them, not just the, 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 the host, but none of the other Pharisees and religious rulers of the day, the scribes, the, the people, of the experts of all the law, they could have given, well, you know, according to this law, they knew it. They could have said, you shall or you shall not do that. Nobody said anything because they were waiting to see what Jesus would do. And inside, I think Jesus has this, this, this righteous burn going on. He's starting to think, you people who claim to know God, you people who are so up on being so good and so righteous, you care so much about God, and yet you do not care about this man. And so he touches the guy in front of them all. It's against their laws. It's not against the Old Testament Sabbath laws, but it's against their laws about the Sabbath. And he does this on the Sabbath. And, and you would think the host would celebrate. You would think that he would be all excited. Oh, wow, look at what this miracle work can do. No, they, they stand in silence. You do nothing. The host doesn't say, hey, come on, guy, you know, look at what God is doing for you. Why don't you join us for dinner? Let's celebrate what God has done. And he just, Jesus does this. Everybody's looking to the host to see what the host is going to do. The host is looking at the scribes and everybody else is saying, what are we going to do about this? And there's this awkward silence. And so Jesus touches the guy and heals him. And then he says, you may go, be on your way. I wish you well. And then what do we do? Do we sit down to a nice happy meal? What do we do? What, Jesus then takes that awkward silence and he steps in. And, he's, and, and, and he turns the temperature up a few degrees. And he asks them, you know, if one of you had a child, or even an ox for that sake, and it falls into a well on the Sabbath day, would you not immediately pull it out? And notice... Silence. They had nothing to say. I, Jesus has a way of making comfortable people uncomfortable. Doesn't he? Anybody know that feeling? Yes. I've heard it said, you've heard it said before too, that he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. And this is one of those instances where these spiritually superior, comfortable people Jesus automatically makes them feel very awkward, very uncomfortable. Now, I think, I imagine Jesus at times like this. And do you remember the old 60 Minutes when Mike Wallace or Dan Rather would just show up at somebody's door and knock on it with the cameras rolling and, or somebody's office and he'd catch them by surprise? I mean, that's what made 60 Minutes great. You wanted to see who was going to get entrapped in their hypocrisy or in their, in their, in their lying and whatever. And it's almost like Jesus is, is that reporter that shows up in that moment and all of a sudden they're put on the spot. The cameras are turned on them. What is it? What would happen if it was your child? What, was if, what, if, what if it was your animal? Wouldn't you help? Don't you believe that your child is worth saving? 
Even, don't you even think your ox would be worth saving? How much more would this person be worth saving? Jesus is helping them to see, don't you see the value of a person? Don't you see the dignity that this person has? Yes, he's deformed. Yes, he's not so high up on your, maybe he's not clean enough to go into the temple because he has this disease or he has this issue. Maybe he doesn't, but I want you to know God sees something in him that you don't see. And he's so valuable. God's wanting these people to see it so clearly. And the main issue here is what is a person worth? I mean, don't we all want to know the worth of things? When you go to buy a car, if you're smart, if you're buying a used car, where do you go first before you go to the dealer? You go to the blue book, right? The blue book is this book that tells you what the value of a car should be, a used car, so that when you go to negotiate, you have a good idea of what the true value of it is. And so we want to know what what that car is worth. Well, Jesus is, is the blue book to determine what the worth of a human being is. And notice what he says elsewhere, Matthew 12. He says, if one of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep, he says. Elsewhere, he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Notice the value he places here. Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall into the ground, fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Parents, you value your children. In fact, when a child is born, what's the first thing they do? They count the fingers and the toes. They got 10 fingers, 10 toes. Woo! That's a good sign. That's, that's exciting. This child is valuable. It's precious. Well, God not only counts our fingers and toes, God counts the hairs on our heads. God cares that much about us that even when you lose a hair, he gets upset by that. <laughs> not as much as you do, I know, but... He, Proverbs says this by the way by the way Proverbs 16.31 says gray hair is a crown of splendor it is attained by a righteous life so if you stop and see somebody with gray hair I want you to be in awe I want you to be in I want you to appreciate that because that person's a spiritual giant And, you know, some of you color your gray hair. I want you to know that's an abomination. God, you're sinning. That's terrible. Let it shine. Let it shine. (laughs) The point is that you know I'm being facetious. If God cares that much about the birds of the air, if he cares about the flowers of the field, if he cares about the hairs of your head, how much more does he value you? How much more does he care about you? God values you and this man with dropsy and anyone that might not meet up to the standards that society says is valuable. God values that more than you could ever imagine. 
And when he does that, they had nothing to say. They had nothing to say. Here it is, dinner time, it's coming, Jesus is there, everybody is awkwardly silent. So Jesus doesn't stop there. He cranks up the awkwardness temperature even a little higher. And he goes on. And if you read on in that chapter, he gives two recommendations to these people. And then he goes and he tells one story. And I won't read it all, but I want you to notice what he says. To the guests, he said, when he noticed how the guests, when they came to this house, they picked all the, 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 the seats of honor at the table. He said to them, he told them a parable. He said, you know, let me give you some advice. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the places of honor for a person more distinguished than you may come and have been invited. And so the host will ask you to step down from the seat of honor and let the other person come and take your seat. And he says, that will be humiliating. You will love to take the least seat. And if you are asked to move up, then you'll be exalted. He said, friend, you know, For those who exalt themselves, they are going to be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the point to Jesus is making to them is that you have your seating chart all wrong. He says, before, it's better to give dignity to someone else than to suffer the humility of having it taken away from you. So he gives a little advice to the guests. And then he says to the host... He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite just your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. For if you do, they, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite what? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so Jesus is saying, you know, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... All of them have and bear the image of God as much as you. Don't consider them less than you. And then he tells them another parable. He tells a story. He said, when those at the table heard this, or one of them at the table heard this, he said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast at the kingdom of God. I think somebody just, there was awkward silence again, and somebody just, they threw out something. Somebody had to say something. Blessed is the person that that eats at the feast of God. In the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus says, there was a certain man preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent out his servants to invite those or to bring in those who had been invited. Come for everything is ready. The banquet's ready. Come to the banquet. And the story goes on. The parable Jesus said, one after another, everybody has, a, has an excuse. You know, I just bought a field. I got to go check it out. I just bought, you know, some new oxen. I got to test them. I got to see if they're working. I just got married. I can't make it. And so the servant comes back to the, to the master of the banquet. And he says, they're not coming. Nobody's coming. Everybody's busy. They don't want to show up. And then the owner of the house becomes angry. He prepared this huge meal. He wants people to come and experience the joy of it all. And so he says, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. He did that. There's still room. And the master said, go out into the roads, go to the country lanes and compel them so that my house will be full. And the point Jesus is making here is that he is, God wants everyone to feel welcome. Everyone is invited to his household. Everybody is invited to the banquet that Jesus 
wants to offer. The banquet that God is offering. Not just the elite, not just the prestigious, not just the healthy, not just the smart, not just the haves. God is making room because God has conferred dignity on all people. No matter who you are. And you people at this banquet, you need to get this. Especially you, you the host. You need to see this. That kind of teaching changed. As people caught those kinds of stories, it changed the thinking and culture. And the point today is that Jesus is still sending out his servants into the streets, into the alleys, into the lanes. And he's saying, please come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He has more for you than you could ever imagine. He wants you to know how valuable, how important you are. Find the forgotten person. Find the overlooked and bring them. Find the dropout. Find the drug addicted. Find the teenage runaway who's, who, who's, who's afraid to go home, the pregnant teenager. Find the, the wealthy, the confused overachiever. Jesus is saying, please, find the semi-literate day laborer who nobody will look at or talk to, who has, find, find the, that unvisited widow, find the person that's all alone, find the angry young man who has no job and no dream, and tell them there's still room, there's still time, you can come, you're welcome, please come to the banquet. So here's what I want you to do. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you see that person looking back at you, I want you to realize that that person has incredible, infinite dignity and value in God's eyes. And you need to see yourself. I don't care. You might look at the blemishes. You might look at the gray hair or the no hair or the whatever. And you might think, oh, I don't have what I once had. Or, oh, I'm not like so-and-so. Or, I wish I could be. And I want you to see God looking back at you and saying, you are worth my life. You're worth everything. I'm inviting you to my place for dinner. I want you to come. Not so I can test you. I want you to come to the banquet and enjoy and, and every person you lock eyes with, I want you to see that they too have been bestowed with, with royal dignity. They bear the image of God. And I don't care if it's the beggar on the street. I don't care if it's, if, it's, if it's the person that has hurt you. I don't care whoever that person is. I need you to see them through the eyes of God. So I want us to take a moment and ask the question, where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see yourself in this story? In just a minute, I'm going to turn it over to David up at the mills, and I'm going to ask us here in Oakmont to respond accordingly. But right now, I want everybody to just bow your heads as I, as I ask you a couple questions. And I want, you to, I want you to be honest this morning with yourself. Because this is, this is the Lord's day. It's not the Hebrew Sabbath. It's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's our, we've turned this into our day of celebration, the Lord's Sabbath. It's, but I want you to know that Jesus loves to do some work on the Sabbath. And Jesus wants to do some work today.
right here in this place. So who do you see yourself? Where do you find yourself in this story? Maybe you find yourself like the guy who comes and you're genuine and you, you need to be touched by Jesus. This morning you're looking at yourself and you're saying, man, I've really messed up. I, I don't measure up. I'm not as good as. I'm not what I wish I was. I'm not what I should have been. I'm, you're, living, you're here this morning and you're like, oh, I don't belong in this party. I should not be invited. Maybe others have rejected you. Maybe, maybe that person that you thought was going to be the one for you has, has rejected you for someone else and you feel worthless. Maybe you're here and you lost your job and you don't know what you're going to do and you feel helpless. Maybe, maybe you tried to, to get that promotion or you tried to pass that test or make the team and you failed and, and you, feel, you feel like a failure. Perhaps you're here today and you're struggling with some physical issues. Maybe, maybe it's just a, it's something that you're, you're feeling debilitated. You're feeling afraid. And you need Jesus to do a work in you today. I want you to know that Jesus wants to touch you. Jesus, it's the Sabbath. Jesus specializes in touching people on the Sabbath, and he wants to touch you today. And if you see yourself in that situation... I'm going to invite you to come and step forward up at the mills and here I'm going to invite you in just a few moments to do that. Let Jesus touch you. Maybe you're here this morning and it's hard to admit, but you, you might see, you might find yourself more like the host or maybe just some of the guests of the host and you're looking at somebody that has devalued themselves. You're bothered by somebody that That has hurt you. You're frustrated. You're angry because they've tarnished their value in your eyes. Maybe you're a parent and, and, and you, want to, you want to have feelings of dignity for your child, but this beautiful born baby with 10 fingers and 10 toes now has made choices that are really hurting them and they've tarnished their value in your eyes. And, and you, you, you want to hurt them back because you hurt so badly. You want to teach them a lesson. And I want you to come and pray for them today. You need to pray for them because God values them. And I know you do too, but you need God to touch your heart. Maybe you're a child and it's your parents who've messed up. They've made poor choices. And, and, and it's messing up your life and you're angry. You're angry. How could... How could somebody who's grown up be so stupid and you just want to wanna hurt them back and, and you need to pray for them? Maybe it's a friend. Uh, uh, maybe it's a boss, whatever. There's somebody that you has, that, that have been devalued in your eyes and you need to, rather than get angry, rather than want to hurt back, I want to invite you to pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.